Hey everybody, the episode that's coming up is fun, and it was very late when we did it, and I just thought that you should know that, And uh, but we had some positive things to say about a series that we love, so I hope you'll give it a listen. Coming up next, we're going back to Narnia, baby! Everybody, welcome to the Bookening. This is Nathan Emerson, humble and obedient host, H and O H, H O H, head of household, humble of H O H A O H. Yeah, all right, fair. Hey yo, <laughs> hey yo, hey yo. My name A-O, is Nathan. Hey yo, hey yo, that girl looks good. <laughs> uh, married man, Jake. You are. He was talking about was his talking wife. About... He's talking about his wife. Heck yeah, baby. Yeah. My wife also looked good. No diggity. My wife also no looked good. No doubt. They could have said that. I like that. <laughs> like I, I like that. I was up for me. Yeah. No diggity. How dare you, sir? <laughs> Pistols at dawn. Did you say diggity? <laughs> <laughs> like something Pierre would do if somebody said diggity to his <laughs> wife. Folks, we are in the month of December, and we thought we'd start the month out by giving you a little Christmas surprise. A little Christmas is coming early because. Santa got on his sleigh and he delivered from our mouths to your ears. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, delivering from our mouth to your beautiful ears. He is delivering today in the, this podcast. You know what? I'm going to start over. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan Opperson, your humble and obedient host. That's Jake, the pastor who's a master. I like the no diggity stuff. No, I'm keeping on. it in. I'm just going to, people can just hear me start over. Okay. Folks, cool. I don't. I'd say I start over maybe 30% of the time. Is that about right? It's, it's like revving, revving it's up. It's more like 80% of the time. No, it's not 80% of the time. It's kind of like 80% I'm of the time. I'm good at what I do, but I have to be You're feeling good it. at what you do, but part of being good at what you do requires restarts. But I, d- I never restart in the middle. Like once we get going, we can go. <sighs> I kind of feel like we need to restart. <laughs> you want to restart? Yeah, let's restart. Let's restart. Hey, everybody. It's me, <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> Welcome to the Booking. <laughs> Hey, it's a plate of 14 donuts. Nathan's, um, Nathan's consuming them. Nathan, stop it. I'm sorry, Brandon. I didn't need to consume these donuts because I'm so thin. My doctor says I'll die if I don't eat more donuts. What is it, opposite day, Nathan? <laughs> so wait, did you need to eat the donuts or not? I'm confused. Yeah, I have to eat the I donuts. I didn't need to eat these donuts. Because I'm so thin, the doctor said I have to eat these donuts. I don't. Yeah, I don't need to eat these donuts because I don't listen to the doctor. The doctor's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start over. Hey, hey, hey everybody! <laughs> it's me, Brandon. Yeah. Here's a plate of donuts. I'm gonna eat. Um, um, um. <laughs> Look, you still got it in, Nathan. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> well done. <laughs> ah, well done. That's gets a well done from Brandon. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. Persistent pay, persistence pays off, Nathan. Yes, sir. Prior, yes, proper sir. Planning pre- prevents pitiful poor performance. That's hard to say. <laughs> Seven P's. Much like a hole Thanks, that's Larry Klein. D- dug in the ground that is successfully having water come out of it via a bucket. What the heck? Well done. <laughs> <laughs> what I did was, well, 
done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well, well, well. Okay. Do it. All right. I think the new listeners. This is supposed to be a positive episode. This is a positive, positive energy. This is positive energy episode. And old positive energy Brandon's right there. He's the scholar who's a baller of reading books. <laughs> Did a little uh, Jerry Lewis there. Layman. Seven. Brandon. Seven. All right. All right. You know what? Let's start over with this episode. Here. No, 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 no. This you is know? great where we're at. This is good? I think this is perfect. You like this? Is this the best thing we've ever done? Uh, it, it's, I'm feeling it, Nathan. You're feeling it. Okay. And you, of course, are, are Brandon Chastain, the scholar who's a baller of reading. I am. That's Jake Menzel right there. Yo. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. Brandon, I should say, is the scholar who's a baller of books. Our friend Adam said he missed the days when I said baller of books, and so I will say them again. You are a people pleaser. I am a people pleaser, and that's why we're returning to the subject of Narnia. My name is Nathan, your humble and obedient host, if I didn't say that. And we are going to say, as an early Christmas present to you, because some people thought our Narnia episodes were a little critical. Although we, we do like Narnia. But were they critical? Yeah, they were. Critical in the sense That's of fair. being very important mm-hmm. for C.S. Lewis studies everywhere. <laughs> and for people who want yeah, to take their understanding of C.S. Lewis seriously. Right. Yeah. Then yes, critical. <laughs> in that sense, they critical it, in the sense that it's critical that you listen to them. To hear top-notch quality podcasting. Yeah. Yes. In that critical sense, in the critical. sense that I think that they reached critical mass, and you don't need any other things on C.S. Lewis or thoughts on C.S. Lewis. But we're still giving you this because, you know, icing has never heard a cake. That statement, there's, I, I don't know that I've heard a less true statement in my life. I've eaten a lot of cakes with a lot of bad icing in my life. Yeah. And Brandon, we don't even want to think about how much cake that guy's eaten. <laughs> no, Nathan, Yeah. <laughs> Brandon's a regular Mary Antoinette. I say, let them eat cake. No, Brandon's a regular. Yeah, I say, hey, let Nathan eat cake. He's going to eat it anyways. There's no stopping him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to prevent Brandon from eating it all. <laughs> like, oh no, I better stuff my mouth with cake. I hope Brandon doesn't grab it out of my mouth hole. Now, <laughs> out of your mouth hole? Yeah. <laughs> you know my mouth hole. <laughs> it's this thing. It's got teeth, a tongue, Often a throat in it. Cake. <laughs> Words come out of it. Cake goes into it. Everybody that was uh, looking for a serious and sincere appreciation of Lewis after our Narnia series is now, I think, gone. Okay, good. So now so, we can now we can be honest. Now we can be honest. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> Narnia drools, man. No, we like Narnia. We really do. And to prove it, we wanted to give our listeners an early Christmas gift and talk about our top seven things that we love about narnia this is going to be a relaxed episode i encourage our listeners to pour themselves a glass of wine sit down by the fire some eggnog yeah some eggnog get some eggnog put on your slippers put on your slippers get in your bedrobe get in your bedrobe sit by the fire plenty of uh bourbon in your eggnog plenty Plenty. of southern comfort yeah put some southern comfort in your eggnog Sit down by the fire. Jack Daniels. Put on your bedrobe, as Brandon calls it. I'm not Jack sure Daniels, that's if I a had word. Money to have Jack what Daniels they regularly, it would be in my eggnog. What's your morning that? robe? Bedrobe. Your dress robes. Dress robe. Is bedrobe a thing? No, your bathrobe. 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 Where did bedrobe come from? I don't from? know, Nathan. Wardrobe. Bedrobe. Put on your wardrobe. Yeah, Get in the wardrobe. The lion, the witch, and the bedrobe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clothe yourself in your wardrobe. Yeah. And then Lucy <laughs> went through the bedrobe and. Touched the magical branches. <laughs> <And> <laughs> she bed, was. 
your bedclothes. <laughs> and there she was in the oh land of goodness, none. Guys, can we please? The supposal <laughs> land, not the allegorical land. All right, let's start over. All right. Let's start over. No, okay, guys, this is going to be fun. Uh, as you can tell, we're a little slap happy. We're recording this late, but we are- It's rec- getting on midnight. Yep, it's, get, it's getting on midnight. We are the children of midnight. We are the children we're, of midnight. Well, we're not getting any younger, and Jake so has we're tried turning to kill into with... pumpkins earlier. Yeah. Something. Jake tried to kill me with his knees. Jake, True. yep, yep. I stuck some snot into my brain. And... <laughs> I was going to say, Brandon just tried to blow snot on me. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> My name is Nathan Albertson. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Midnight's Children reference. And if you are listening to this for C.S. Lewis, then we're probably cutting all of this. No. It doesn't matter anyway. No. Oh, this is all staying in. <laughs> but we just read that book and discussed it last month. And so. we liked it. Yeah. And, and speaking li- of things we, we liked. Li- and we like Lewis. No. <laughs> Try and say that. With <laughs> we like Lewis. We, we like. like... Lu- are we going to start doing our list? Yes. All right, so guys, we're going to go through seven things. We've each, each compiled a list. What is the number seventh? Oh, I didn't, I didn't put them in order. Well, take a second and rank them, my friend. Oh, I'm not going to rank goodness. mine. No, I refuse. I'm just going to... I like these. I like, I like Lewis so much. There's no ranking these things. Okay. Guys, let's talk about the seven things that we each like about Narnia the most. The top seven things in honor of our lamppost system, which also contained seven lampposts, which was probably in honor of Narnia, which contained seven books. I think it was in honor of Narnia, (laughs) yes, Nathan, that's fair to say. Now, what is the number seventh thing, Brandon, that you like about Narnia? Um, It's lack of pederasty defenses. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Nathan Alverson. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Seriously, uh, one of the things that I loved about the Narnia series is... (laughs) <laughs> the lack of fetish. What if you tried to lean into that? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going to lean into it. Don't worry. Seriously. You're such a jerk, man. <laughs> I know I'm a jerk. I'm sorry, guys. No, you're uh, not. No, I'm not you at all. You would change if you were sorry, Brian. Yeah, I would change if I was sorry. And guess what? I'm if you were an gonna... Indian woman, you'd wear a sorry. Yeah, I'm not going to change people. <laughs> and true? I would wear a sorry if for the right price. <laughs> <laughs> if for the right price. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh man, this episode is. I like. I think he's a great. <laughs> so far off the rails. It's like the opposite of Anna Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna read what I have. I like his simple style. It's easy to read and it's fun to read. I like the style. Okay, I think he's a style. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, um, I should have put style down here. He's got a style that's fun to read to children. That's fun to read yourself. It's engaging. It's it fits the stories. It it makes you sound like you're just talking to your grandfather at a fireside. It's great, and that I'm being completely sincere. Mm-hmm. No sarcastic Brandon anymore. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. One, it drew me in. I wanted to read when the stories were good. Only in one case did I feel that that failed, and it was with horse and his boy. Horse and his boy, and that's because that's where the style kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's number one from number seven for me. I think Lewis properly rated as a great nonfiction essayist kind of stylist in that sense. I think underrated as a describer and a fiction stylist. Yep. He has a lot of beautiful turns of phrase. I remember when we read, what's that thing called with the strength? That hideous strength. Yeah. There's just like a description where Jane Studdock is on a bus or something like that. And she's going by the autumnal countryside and it's it's beautiful. Like he he's he doesn't always do it, but when he wants to paint a little picture for you. He's actually quite capable of doing it. And I, I, I like his style. 
And yes, he's simple and he's direct and he's charming, for lack yes, of a better word. charming is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. So that is my number seven. All right, Jake. All right. Your number seven? I am, again, I'm not ordering these. The very first thing that I wrote down was fun. Here's an idea. If you're going to write children's books, make them fun. Make them enjoyable. It's that Lewis principle that we like to quote, which is that I can't remember it. What is it? You got to make the first goal of, oh, shoot. Come on. We say this all the time. Guys, it really is late in case you didn't figure that out. The first thing that a story needs to be is entertaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got to be entertaining. Like whatever else it is, it has to be entertaining or who cares? Right. Sorry. Entertain. Whatever else it is, it has to be entertaining or who cares? Who's ever going to read it Mm -hmm. if it's not entertaining? And these books are just fun. They're entertaining. They're wonderful adventure stories. There's, there's not a lot that we've read that's more fun than Narnia. I mean, is there anything? I guess there are water. But well, when it comes to kids' stories, I I, I want to throw a bunch of mine into one here and just say you're talking about story. So the next thing that I would say is just uh, for all ages fun mm-hmm. from the kid who can barely grasp the story that you're telling because he barely has the language or the tools, three, four, five years old, to the adult. They're just fun, engaging stories. And as soon as you're able to read, you're able to read and engage with these books, and you're never really too old for them. There there are, like he um, says humorously in his little introduction or dedication to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, there's that immature phase where you think you're becoming mature. Mm-hmm. And you think you've grown out of fairy tales and children's stories for a minute. One day you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again. But anybody who has just a appreciation for good, fun adventure stories. Well, I think we have a special appreciation because we've read a bunch of children's stories like The Jungle Book and realized what was fun for some people at a certain time doesn't necessarily translate over the decades into yeah. something that's still, you know, some of it might have value in other ways, but we actually did a series of children's stories over the first few years of the bookening that weren't that fun. Yep. Yeah, at the end of the day, we're left with Charlotte's Web, Harry Potter, and Narnia, Narnia. right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what else is fun is me giving my seventh thing. So was that seven and six for you, Jake? Yeah. Okay. Fun and what was six exactly? For all ages. For all fun ages. For all ages. Yep. Well, I will give, so I'll give two and then I'll let Brandon give his six and his five. Well, my two and my, my, my five and my four go together. Okay, good. That works well. All right. So my number seven was Nightmare Cloud. What? <laughs> that Nightmare Cloud that they go through in oh, yeah. uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Oh, yeah. So you guys thought of like cool things that were like indicative of the entire stories, but I tried to think of just- Moments. Moments. I did that too. Did you, Brandon? I did both. You did bo- a little bit of both? A little bit of both. Yeah. A little bobo? A little bobo? A little bobo. I didn't- Go for moments at all. I just went for big picture. Well, that's that's okay. That's the fun of doing a top seven is people can approach it however they like. Maybe some of our listeners out there would like to make a top seven and send it to us via Maybe the social we'll media. Maybe we'll ask you on Instagram. Hey, Brandon. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we did that. And that sounds I like would a good not idea. either. I would love to hear because I bet people have all kinds of different answers. And to me, there's some there's these really striking scenes and moments. And one of them is that little nightmare cloud alley that they go through in the Voyage of the Don Treader. I had forgotten all about that 
I'd forgotten a lot of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader because I mostly associated it with the BBC's crappy adaptation of it, full of people in cheesy mouse costumes and stuff like that. That is just like a really powerful little horror story, actually. One of my favorite kind of things. Really spooky conceit. They go into a little dark cloud and suddenly everybody's nightmares are come through. And he does a really good job, you know, of showing, not telling, and of implying you know, horror works best by kind of going to work on your imagination. Yeah. All those, the little, where the guy's like, it's crawling on me and yeah, stuff like that. And he, I don't think you find out what one of their nightmares was, but you hear a bunch of lines of dialogue and stuff that just gets your mind working. Yeah. And it's really creepy and it's great. And, and that was one of the fun moments where we got to see his editing skills. Where yeah. He made right. a good decision. Right? Yeah. Because in the original version, Nightmare, the Nightmare Cloud gets. Asland, right? Yeah, he's Aslan like, cancels it. He's like, nope. Yeah, part of cancel Your season's culture. over. <laughs> but uh, in the new one, it's like they sailed away and it disappeared there, in the yeah, distance, yeah. and it, it was still there. there. Yeah, which is much more evocative and cool. Yeah. So that's my number seven, and I guess I, I need to give my number six as well. Well, I'll do something similar actually, just to kind of pair. I'll pair the two things that are most similar. So, Charn, Charn has always stuck with me. The dying sun of it all, the spooky statues. It's just like you could write your own horror novella or something. And the bell, I've talked about that a billion times. Everything about that is so spooky, so perfect, so evocative, so otherly, so eldritch. Red. So, yeah. It is red. What did I say? Did I not say red? You said eldritch. Snob. No, I just... I just thought it he was, was just adding on. It oh, is okay, cool. I just thought it was worth saying that you say Charn and I think Red. Yeah, the Red too, yeah. Because the sun is dying. And just the idea of a post-apocalyptic planet that's like yeah. wiped out. Nobody's there. Well, this is this is good because this is actually my five is mm-hmm. Charn. Really? Yes. Yeah, so, so four and I said five and four go together because they have to do with a setting. Mm-hmm. Two worlds that were strong settings for me. For Charn, it was the redness, it was the weirdness, that bell. But it also has to do with this, I th- the, the uncanniness to it. Yes, that's a good word um, for it. So I've mentioned the book Paralandra before, and mm-hmm. we've made fun of it. But there's a scene in there where there's this, st- he goes into like this temple. Have you guys seen uh, Pan's Labyrinth? Uh-huh. Yep. Where, he go- where she goes down into that one where they have the feast table in that weird temple like in the guy with the hands. The eye hands. Yeah. But that strange temple... That she's in, and the I don't know what it is about buildings like that, but when you go into empty temples mm-hmm. or empty old cathedrals or empty old palaces, just the weight of history. People have yeah. died and lived and worshipped and ate and. But then, if you add here. statues to it, it yeah. makes it even stranger. Especially if those statues are kind of yeah. otherworldly. Yeah, it's really eerie. And so that quality to Charn has always spooked me, mm-hmm. and I think that's yeah, it's fantastic. And it's, it held up as yeah. an adult. It was like this is still pretty spooky. Yeah, and so for me, that was one of his strengths is, is these settings. And this one stands out to me. The other one that stands out to me is just evocative. Or is that it? Yeah. Um, so that is that is my number five. Then I can also give my number four. Mm-hmm. Um, is And I forget what the world was called, but it's in the silver chair where all the goblins are going back into the underworld. Yeah, I thought about putting that. But With I the didn't. burning gems. Yeah. And like, yeah. You know, if you go there, you can like actually flowers. drink the gems. Mm. And it's these colors that we've never seen, and it's this world, and he's really tempted to go down into it. Is it Rillian? Is that his name? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. He wants to go down, but they won't let him. 
but it's that sense of there being a world that is strange and beautiful and has all these elements to it, kind of like a, uh, a spirited away movie. Mm-hmm. And it's weird and it's different from our world and it would be exciting to go and see it. And yet Lewis doesn't let you see it. Yeah. I think it's amazing. But that lets that your imagination evokes, yeah. start to go to work. He evokes a whole setting in a whole world by not letting you see it, by just mm-hmm. getting a glimpse of it, a little taste. And that's one of my favorite things in any of the books is that moment. Yeah, I mean, we always say this, but the the, the statues in the Lord of the Rings movie and the fallen Jedi in yeah. Rogue One but you can, do that same kind of work of just making you imagine a whole yeah. history and feel the weight of it. But Lewis is good at that. He, he's got a strong sense of theatrical setting. It's what people love about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the snow world. And he makes you feel like you're actually there. And where it's weakest is like in The Horse and His Boy, where it just feels like you're... There's not much to the setting. That's too lightly sketched. It's too lightly sketched. And that's not what, and when Lewis is, I would say that's probably one of the weaker parts of Prince Caspian is like Prince Caspian doesn't mm. really have the setting as strongly, except the island with the apples and stuff at the beginning. But he really knows how to make that otherworldliness to this fantasy that he's building for you. Right. Well, he can and especially so. do British style otherworldliness. He can take things that he's familiar with, like mm-hmm. snow, and make them big and magical and mysterious even the space between two houses yeah oh yeah that's great and um magician's nephew yeah where he falls on his uh, stumbles a little bit is with things that he's not as familiar with like arabian folklore apparently so there we go setting there we go and that was five and four for me five and four so are so you haven't said six you still haven't said six yep and so i've said seven i've said five and i've said four so we, we, I've said two, Jake has said two, and you've said three. Yeah, which so, means now we move on to Jake. Right, and he says his third thing. Well, my third thing is what you guys have been talking about. I just put imagination firing. Yeah. And it's you gave two per- specific settings, then you went on to talk about all the different ways that Lewis can fire your imagination. And that's <laughs> also what your setting mm-hmm. did too. And I just, the whole of it, in each of the books... He finds ways to fire the imagination. And I couldn't pick, you know, a scene or a thing. It's just that these books are so rich and colorful to me. And I know some of that's my childhood nostalgia, but as a child, I was transported to all of these places in a way that I don't know that any book I read as a child quite did it for me the way that Narnia did in terms of just bringing these places, these settings, these scenes to life. Maybe uh, Huck on the River. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But outside of that. Well, Huck on the River is similar in that after you read Huck Finn, you can never drive past a river and not think about it. And C.S. Lewis, does, like he's seized every wardrobe that I, in my brain, if I walk past a big wardrobe, C.S. Lewis tells me how to think about it. If I'm you in might s- want to climb into it, but you better not close it. Yep, exactly. If I'm in snow and I see a, a single light gleaming in that snow, I know what that is. I know a fawn's about to walk I, out of the woods. I've got the house I bought, the previous owner, whoever, stuck a little lamppost, little solar lamppost in the front yard. Every time I come home, I think about Narnia, especially when the ground's covered in snow. Right, yeah. And how many books are that fundamental in just like shifting, like being a reference point? Lamppost equals Narnia. Right. Wardrobe equals Narnia. Yeah. Like these really fundamental common. Snow 
actually equals maybe the dead, but mostly imprinted much long, long before old Joyce. Narnia. Narnia. Absolutely. That's right. Lions. And little red scarf. Yeah. Bacchus. Bacchus. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Debauchery. <laughs> no, 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 Brandon. Positive energy. Uh, I'm back on the rails, We Nathan. like Narnia. We really do, folks. I think that they can feel that in our voice. Well, actually, do you mind me jumping ahead of you? Please. Can we go back to you? Yeah. My number six was memorable images, mm-hmm. which goes off what Jake is saying here. And I had in mind the famous image of the fawn and the lamppost, but also it's just all over the place. So again, the silver chair mm-hmm. with the giants and having the under me yeah. on the stone. You have charm. So that's so this gets beyond just setting to having just these specific images that just really stick in your mind. And he's that's one of his strengths. And I think that's why this is so appealing, especially, well, not just especially to children, but just as a story, as a fantasy story, is he knows how to draw the right picture to, that really stays with you. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he didn't start some of these books with images. Well, I mean, I think he even said he started. Well, he did. He had an yeah, idea Lion, the Witch a, of the Wardrobe. a fawn and yeah. know, a lamppost. Uh, but I think that's how his imagination worked. I think that right. mostly it would start with just a picture. And so there are a lot of really cool images like, Aslan singing the stars into existence. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things are fun. Not not just fun. They just they um they stay with you. They're sticky. Yeah, you don't yeah. forget them. Which yeah. is the strength of a metaphor, is the strength of an allegory and a picture. So you know I, who I think the most the the modern parallel to that is Stephen King. I think he always starts with images. I think he's like kids find clowns to be not funny but creepy. I think I can do something with that. And nobody, you know, you don't have to know the book, it, or know the movie. I mean, if you know one thing, you just know creepy clown. You know, Shining is Hotel. It's, it's, he just finds these, these icons. Uh, Let's see. I guess it's my turn, right? So my number five, Puddle Glum. Maybe that's, if I was going to be more broad like you guys, I'd say the characters and particularly the sidekicks. He knows how to draw colorful supporting characters really really well in the dickensian mold where they have a couple of traits and those traits are amplified amplified and made wonderful and puddle glum is probably my favorite and i assume probably a lot of our listeners favorite version of that and i love how much lewis seems to be affectionate for this character lewis you can tell there were people in his life i think he said he based puddle glum on his gardener you can tell he liked his gardener. You can tell he just... Or the gardener of uh, Ransom's house and that hideous strength. Yeah, yeah, he liked the honest doubter kind of character, although that's Puddlegum become, becomes kind of a brave believer at the end. But Well, the part of the conceit is that the honest doubter, the honest skeptic will always be the bravest believer when put to the test. Right. He had a good line on people who hypocritically put themselves forward and then fail. And the kind of man who's unwilling to put himself forward, but when it comes to it, simply will not give or fail. Yeah. And that's Puddle Glum. And I think sad stuff is not what I think moves most people, actually. I think it's people responding with courage. I think, actually, if you think about the things that make you cry in movies, it's It's great. It's always... Courage and hero- heroism. Yeah, or that are great displays of love or sacrifice. But it's always, which like, ties right back into courage and hero- heroism. But those are the things that actually move us. Simply seeing someone have cancer doesn't make us cry. 
seeing someone be brave in the face of having cancer or love his kids in the face of having cancer might make us cry. Yeah. And Puddle Glum. Fredo going off to take the ring to Mordor by himself might make you cry. Sam flailing in the water after him. That'll get you. <laughs> Definitely going to make you cry. And that's Puddle Glum. Again, that's, it, you, you, he brings a lot of emotion out of this guy who's just going to do the right thing. He's not going to be taken in by the Giants. Or, but once they decide to go to the Giants, they're going to put up a good face on it and you know, not spend a lot of time with shenanigans. Who's going to simply stand up to the witch and say, you know what? Our fake world beats your real one any day. It's moving. It's great. You can tell C.S. Lewis probably knew he was writing his best Narnian character mm-hmm. and leaned into it. And um, he's wonderful with all those supporting characters, but Puddle Glum's got to be the best. So that's my number. How many do you guys have left? I have three left. How many do you have left? Three left. Okay, that's my number something. How many do you have left? One, two, three, four. I have four, so maybe I should just do another one. I'll just do the other. uh, there There was another set of characters that stood out to me, and that was Jill and Eustace. I don't know exactly why, but Jill and Eustace, especially in the silver chair, I really responded to in this read through. And I think it's just because, especially Eustace, even Eustace's whole arc from Don Treader on is so good. And I love the way that he's redeemed, but he still has a lot of sanctifying to go to the very end. Yeah. Like even in, even in heaven, Eustace is still kind of complaining or saying the wrong thing. He's, he's never quite there. And yet he, he's trying and he's a good hearted chap. And I really liked that. And I really related to Jill and the jealousies, and it wasn't always pleasant to read about, but I, they just felt like so unromanticized until last battle when I thought that Jill got a little romanticized, but they felt like such kids in a way that I can't think of a lot of things that really compare. Rawling is good at that. I think she's probably better than Lewis at his worst, just capturing, ah, oh, this is what it feels like to have a kid and be at school and have friends and that kind of stuff. But I think Lewis at his best is about as good as anybody, and I think Eustace in particular is Lewis at his best. And so I reserved one of my spots for Jill and Eustace, although they get deducted points for not being as great in last battle. Yes, they're not. Or just being a little off brand or something. I don't know. You're through near number three, Brandon. Uh, my number three is that even though they can get overplayed and especially with the, he's not a tame lion, mm-hmm. that there are those nice little C.S. Lewis quips that are very memorable. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites is from The Magician's Nephew, where the cabbie says, I'd have been a better man my whole life if I'd known there were things like this. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. It's a great way of thinking about things. Yeah. It's useful. You know, I'd have been a better man my whole life if I had known that there were things like this. And keeping that quote's been a great quote. I like that quote. And um, there are other useful ones. Puddle Glum's speech to the Green Witch. Mm-hmm. It's a great one as well. Um, I know that we, I know I made a lot of fun of some of the Aslan phrases and st- sayings, but there were even some great ones of, from him. And so some of that C.S. Lewis wisdom comes through that he can put into nice little phrases that are very memorable. You know, I have to admit, I'll just go ahead and give my third one. I wrote Not a Tame Lion. Yeah. And I wish I had the wherewithal to just write quips because that would be maybe a better answer. Brandon's a smarter guy than I am. But you know, as dumb and overplayed and as much as I've seen it in a million Facebook posts and tweets and Instagram things and stuff, Not a Tame Lion sticks with you. 
And there's an essential truth about God in it that I don't think C.S. Lewis understood half the time, but I certainly do think about it all the time. Yeah. And it certainly is a helpful thing to remember. God is not controlled or predictable or what I want him to be. He's God. He's other. He's powerful. He's wrathful against. I mean, that's all contained in he's not a tame lion. So what could I do other but to write it down as one of my things? There you go. So we agree. We agree. Great minds think alike. Jake? Nathan says, not a tame lion. Brandon says, quips. And I said, metaphors. There you go. (laughs) Metaphors for sin and virtue and temptation, but metaphors that stick and that resonate. And, or actually I said resonate and stick. Mm -hmm. A lot of books will have a metaphor for that that kind of thing, not a tame lion or the bell and charn or whatever. It'll resonate with you in the moment, but it won't stick with you and become a metaphor for the realities that you face on a day-to-day basis for the rest of your life. But there are, are lots and lots of those types of things throughout any of these books that are powerful enough in the way that they resonate with you that they can stick with you for life. The way that Not a Tame Lion sticks. Mm-hmm. The way that the bell and charn is stuck with Nathan in particular. Mm-hmm. The way that Turkish Delight sticks. Yeah. The way that Eustace's dragon scales stick. Or whatever it is, there are so many things throughout this book or these books that are just good metaphors for sin, virtue, temptation, that and there's a reason people keep coming back to these books, and it's because there was that one metaphor, there was that one thing that really stuck, that really hit home and mm-hmm. held them captive for the rest of their lives and helped explain something about life to them, and they, they've used it as a grid ever since. So yeah, that was my, that's one of mine. Yeah. I was talking to none other than a young lad, one Peter Menzel, and he took it upon himself not too long ago, to approach me and say, Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the best one. He hasn't read them all yet. Apparently he's read Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. And he knows it's the best one. I think he might be keying off his, off of his old man here a little bit, which is what I told him. Um, I was like, you, you, I said, you just think that because your dad thinks it. And he said, no, it's the best. And I said, okay, what's so great about it? And, and he said, they go, on all, they go to a bunch of cool places and have cool adventures. And I'm like, okay. I, I did not actually in the real conversation. I'm exaggerating a little bit. I did not try and snatch his joy. Um, but Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, what's your favorite part? And he said, what you, one I think would actually expect he would say, which was the dragon part. Yep. And I don't know why I thought of that. Well, I guess just, I, yeah, it's a great mem- metaphor. It's a great metaphor. And it sticks with everyone, even children. Yeah. Because it's a useful way of thinking about sin. Everything from the ring being caught around his mm-hmm. arm and burning to yeah. the way it turns him into the monster, the way that actually nobody can bring him back to his true self except for the lion cutting him deep down. Right. Well, I didn't talk to Peter about this, but he's 11, right? Yeah. And so he's just at the age where he's sort of becoming sentient and aware of his own sin and stuff. I mean, why wouldn't he love the dragon metaphor? It's such a... Such a helpful metaphor for yep. sin. Brennan? 
the yeah. number two thing. There's number only two. one thing that you think is better because actually we have been going in order of importance. Oh yeah. So yeah, this yeah. is the thing that Brandon thinks is the um, second most important thing about Narnia. One of the things that I loved about these books was their his way, and I think it comes. We talked about how we think it comes from him actually having fought in World War One. Mm-hmm. But it's the way that he realistically portrays for young boys what it means to be courageous mm-hmm. in battle. Mm-hmm. And not to, I know I always throw Tolstoy into the equation, but. Go sit in a corner and. Yeah, yeah. Tolstoy. Read Tolstoy. And, one of the things that I've loved about this reread of Tolstoy is how great he is at this too. Yeah. I don't know why I yeah, mentioned this. Yeah, same but, thing. But, I had the same thought. Yeah. But that said, the only other author we've read, whom maybe we haven't read a whole lot about war but who has a realistic representation of what it actually means to be courageous when it matters is Lewis. So mm-hmm. one of the great moments is when Peter just accidentally kills the wolf and how in the moment what really matters is just to act and to not fall back and be a coward. But often courage is just choosing to stand your ground and Bumbling it doesn't have right to direction. do with being yeah. an amazing warrior or anything. Right? It just Peter Wolfsbane, the story of how Peter yeah. slayed the wolf and saved his sister's you know, that went down through the ages is the story of how the boy ran towards battle and the wolf accidentally howled and fell on the sword. Yeah, <laughs> which is perfect. Couldn't help himself from howling and fell on the sword in the process and Peter wins. Yeah. You know, and so you have that and then the fight in Prince Caspian, Edmund with the sword later. It's just, it's great. He knows how to show young boys that Yes, sometimes being cra- courageous does not feel glorious, mm-hmm. but it still really matters to be courageous. Shastin, Corin going yeah. into battle and falling. That's right. That's one of the best moments in that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is he decides to jump off the horse and roll around like an idiot to go back and help the girl. Mm-hmm. And what's great about- Well, that, that wasn't the thought that I had, but that is the best moment of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And Shasta goes around back to fight the lion. Yeah. I think all those battle scenes, I, I will go ahead and chime in on this. I wrote down the violence is what I have in my note here. And I meant the same thing that Brandon's talking about, which is, I think he's so good at, you know, you have like anti-war novels where the glory is so drained out of it. And it's just, maybe we just talked about one last week, Midnight's Children, the whole, whole war section is just about how, showing you how horrific and senseless war is. Lewis doesn't do that at the expense of, you know, there is glory, there is heroism, but also the glory in heroism is really mundane. Yep. And you're scared while you're doing it. And he strikes such a nice balance of that. And it says so much about, I'm sure, his own experience. Real bravery is just doing the right thing, stumbling in the right direction, failing forward. And also as a kid, I just really enjoyed the fact that that guy got his legs wop- walloped off and then his head yeah, <laughs> cut off and one, that's pretty great. one like on the backstroke. Yeah, in Caspian. So some yeah. of that kind of violence I just thought was super cool. Yeah. So like if, 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 if I'm ever going to kill an enemy, I would, I think I could do worse than to cut off his legs and then in like the same stroke, come back around and wallop off his head. Yeah, and what a cool awesome. word, wallop. Yeah. Nothing like walloping off an enemy's head. I like to wallop off some heads. Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't? So there we go. Again, on the kind of on the same page there, Nathan. Yeah, great, great. minds think alike. Fools seldom differ. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <clears throat> all right. So have we all said our number two? Jake I've got not. two left. You've got two. All right. Let's hear your number two, Jake. Heroes and villains. Uh, I, I like a 
kids novel where the villains are really villainy and the heroes are well what's great about the villains is they are often just really villainy mm-hmm. you know the white witch is the devil but but throughout all the books the heroes or the villains take on very different yes colors right like the white witch is the devil Mraz is just a guy. He's just like a schemer, kind of. He's very human. Yeah, and it, we could go through each of the books, and each of the villains has a very different character. Some of them are more like larger than life, mm-hmm. evil, kind of like Maleficent, you know. Disney. Yep. And some of them are more just sort of down to the the fishmonger and or the or uh, the, the ape and um, the ape or the battle. or the rabbit ash or you know right. crass and. Um, well, he so, actually so he also the has a full good... range of villainy, um, but real villains. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? Well, he, he just also has a good line in taking a villain like Rabidash, who seems very imposed. He seems like the one sort, and he proves to be the other. Rabidash the ridiculous he, by the end, right? But he see he comes across as this really stereotypical big, you know, epic villain, and then it's like, uh, no, actually, he was an idiot. Um, yeah, which is a good thing to teach kids as well. And then the heroes are, I mean, we've got the hero who's Aslan, the mm-hmm. great hero of this, of all the stories. But then you've got a lot of what you guys were talking about, which is just, you know, kids, the heroes, what do you have to be to be a hero in Narnia? You just have to know what's right and have the guts to stumble forward at it mm-hmm. and accept the fact that you might die. And that's okay. I love that. Me too. Um, I love it. I love that that is what is presented in almost all of the books is you might really suck. Like you might be a terrible person. You might have eaten the Turkish delight. You might be an obnoxious little brat. But if you have repented of your sin, all you got to do is know the right thing to do and have just enough guts to stumble forward into it. And that's, that's okay. That's good enough. Mm-hmm. That works. That gets the job done. And it's ugly and it's not clean and it's, but it is heroic still in its own sense. He doesn't rob it of the sense of heroism. He just brings it down to earth and makes it something that, you know, a nine, 10, 11 year old boy or girl could imagine themselves doing. Right. I could take this step. Actually, this wouldn't actually be so bad. And actually it wouldn't be the worst thing if the wolf got me when I ran to save my sister because mm-hmm. it was the right thing to do. Right. And God is in his heaven and sometimes God makes sure the wolf howls and falls right where your sword is. Right. <laughs> you know, I I love that. Just the heroes and the villains. And I'm going to just let that dovetail into my number one, which I think sort of. Well, can I just say one thing about that before you do? Yeah. Um, What I love in particular is the way that there's really not a pure Aragorn, I wouldn't say, in any of these books. He manages to like find the Samwise inside Everyone, every yeah. Aragorn. So even when you meet the Rillians and the what's the name of the guy the, in um, Last Battle, the main the king guy, Trillian, Trillian, the Trillians, the Rillians, the Gazillions. It's like Tyrion, yeah, Tyrion. They're gonna mess up, you know. Tr- Tyrion kills those guys that he shouldn't because he's just mad. They're gonna do dumb things. They're gonna be scared. It's like you ne- you you never meet anyone in any strata of life with any amount of training who isn't 
you know, some people are more skilled or Reap more brave or more, yeah, exactly. I guess Reap a Cheap is the one. <laughs> Reap a Cheap and Aslan. You got to be an animal, basically. Right. Be... But Reap a Cheap's also like everybody's stifling laughter because he's a he's mouse. A pipsqueak. He's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just love the fact that that all the heroes, even the most traditionally heroic heroes, are are people who are just doing the right thing in the face of whatever comes. That's great. Yeah. Is that? That leads into my my final one, and that's that these books are just straight up ennobling. And they celebrate virtue. They make it really simple and mundane and prosaic to just be virtuous and to have courage. They, they arm you in their own ways against temptation. They're fun. They're engaging. And I, they have good heroes. They have good villains. They're imaginative. I don't know how many mm-hmm. kids' books bring all of that together. They're not, I mean, you can, for as fun as the Harry Potter books are, and they're fun and they're engaging, and they are ennobling in their own way. The virtues that Rowling has in her box of virtues that she's able to, you know, they're really limited. They're pretty paltry at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But Lewis is playing with a much more full deck of virtue across the board. Very few writers, especially children's writers, are doing that. And the only person that I can think that really does it better is Tolkien mm-hmm. when it comes to that sort of thing, telling that kind of ennobling, but still down to earth and pra- like meat and potatoes, but imaginative adventure story for everybody for all ages like it's really pretty special for all the faults and all the flaws of the books and the places where they seem to celebrate bacchanals and <laughs> well, <I could> th- <laughs> what, what, whatever else the the critics have said yeah but as a kid that sells o- over your head and doesn't necessarily need to be interpreted they're not wrong because at the end of the day what lewis is intent on is the good stuff mm-hmm. yeah. coming through and and his sense of personal, whatever you want to say about his broader theology, his sense of personal morality, his sense of right and wrong, his sense of manners even. Yeah, it's pretty spot on, Sterling, right? yeah, it's just perfect. And it, what writers can you find that have, that have that? And that can look at a little boy and say, I know that war is scary and terrifying to you. I know that fight, the fight even against your own sin and temptation is scary and terrifying to you. But really, at the end of the day, nobody's ever really done anything that special except say, I know what the right thing to do is. Let me fail forward at it. Mm-hmm. And maybe and maybe God will do something great with it. And maybe he won't. But at the end of the day, we'll, I'll have done what's right. And he'll be pleased with that. And that's okay. That's good enough. Like, that is really great and that's through each of these books and that's that's special yeah absolutely well mine my number one this actually is i I wasn't really going in any kind of particular order but i'd say this is my favorite thing that i sort of rediscovered and rereading these books and it's absolutely tied to what you're talking about but the for lack of a better word i wrote the discipline and we talked about this a lot when we went through the books but there's all these scenes where the kids either try and fail, you know, Peter forgets to wipe his sword after his big battle, or they simply do the wrong thing. 
they won't believe Lucy, you know, when she wants them to. I mean, there's the big like repentance moments like Eustace. Edmund, whatever. Or Edmund. But then there's also like Lucy really wants to know what her friends, you know, use the spell to know what her friends saying about her. Jill doesn't want to pull the thorn out of the line. You know, there's all yep. these things, just just even little moments where somebody will be hanging out with Aslan and somebody will be like, well, what about this? And Aslan will sort of give them a withering glance and say, no, this, idiot. It really threw into sharp relief. No the- one's ever told any story about their own. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it threw into sharp relief what's wrong with Harry Potter, for one thing. It was helpful in realizing Harry never does anything wrong. Except for he does, but the book wants to skate over it and say, mm-hmm. "Yep, actually, because Rowling, you just have Dumbledore take full responsibility for all of Harry's, which is so womanly." And I've actually had this experience in in writing things like on the Ville when we write things. Sometimes I'll be protective of characters, like I don't want that person to experience the consequences of their actions in this particular scene. And we'll be talking about it and we'll realize actually they need to, it needs to go this direction, which is going to feel worse and be less fun to write about, but it's, it's what would happen and it's what's good for them um, as the, as the gods of this little universe or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Lewis never seems to have that problem. Even his beloved, you know, little girl L- heroines Lucy like Lucy disciplined is yeah. going to be disciplined and do the wrong thing. And it does so much. It is ennobling. It, and Susan's not going to make it. So and Susan's well. not going to make it because she wanted to wear nylons. Yeah, Lewis right. hates women. Lewis doesn't hate women. It's a stupid criticism that people make. I just encountered it again. Who was I reading? I don't know. I was reading some, oh, Spark Notes. I was on Spark Notes for some reason. I think to remember Midnight's Children and I read like the top seven bummers in <laughs> classic literature. And one of them was Susan. Really? Wearing nylons and not making it to heaven. But I was just like, that's not even a good summary of what Lewis was like. Let's at least start with what he thought he was getting at. But I, I think it's ennobling, and it's it's like it, it does everything that Jake is talking about. What it also does, though, is it makes the stories so much more relatable. I think because every kid gets disciplined, and we all remember even kids that are poorly disciplined. You know, even the kid who had pushover parents, the kid who never got a spanking in his life, you still get bad grades. You still get yelled at by your dad when you spill something. You still, you know, we've all had Or, you know, what happened earlier today. Stop bouncing off the chair like that. You're going to get hurt. Oops, I flipped over and now I'm crying. Yeah. Right. I didn't bring any discipline there. But. Discipline happened. Right. God, God brought the discipline. Right. With the consequences of. With gravity. Of gravity, yeah. Yeah. So that's life. And it's like something that it it actually makes Harry Potter a less relatable character. He can't mess up. And it's like, I mess up all the time. And even completely benign or completely pushover authority figures are somehow or other telling me about it. Like, it's just... They're all wrong. You're the only one that's right. You're your own perfect little butterfly. Right. Follow your heart, Nathan. And I, but I have a stinking suspicion. And it will all go right for my you heart's... in the end. And if it doesn't, it'll be the fault <laughs> of the authorities. Yeah. Well, they're all Voldemort, actually, at the end of yeah. the day. But I just, you know, Jake's being sarcastic, folks. Actually, I'm not always right about everything. Jake can confirm. I was making fun of Harry Potter, which we've already done. No, I know. I don't know. I just think the discipline in these books 
is powerful and it's so it's so odd it's like the kind of thing that i just don't think a children's author would even think usually to put in a book these days you know just just to write the scene where somebody gets something wrong and needs to be told about it it's like that's not what we do you know harry ron and hermione all like each other and sometimes for certain dramatic reasons or emotional reasons they'll get into a bit of a tiff but they're all well-intentioned and they're all basically at the end of the day they're going to be there on the same team right because the voldemort shows up three people will be standing side by side right because the only actual virtue in those books is loyalty friendship and friendship that's right. But Lewis believes there's a lot of virtues, including like cleanliness and wiping your sword after a battle and stuff like that. I mean, you think about it. Lewis had to choose. Resisting temptation, not mocking the weak or those who don't share the advantages that you have. Right. Listening to authority. Mm-hmm. And it just adds, again, I mean, I'll say this again. It just adds so much because I, you know, I just think all of us have had the moment where, oh, we actually did stumble into doing the right thing. Uh, and then we forgot to wipe our sword. I mean, that just anchors Peter's big victory in such reality. We've all been there. We can all tell stories. You know, I don't have anything in particular in my, my my mind right now, but I know everyone listening and all three of us in this room, we've all had the moment where like we did the glorious thing and then mundane There is reality. a natural consequence of that, of having done that glorious thing. And that's that you've got to do the mundane cleanup that comes with having done the glorious thing, yeah. which wasn't actually that glorious after all, if you think about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, for me, it'd be like, uh, I did the dishes, honey. Aren't you proud of me? I went out of my way to do the dishes. Well, did you wipe up all the water that you got like all over the sink and the floor and the fridge and in the silverware container? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but aren't you proud of me for doing the dishes? Like, I made a gourmet meal. Well, did you do the dishes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like, you, you can take this anywhere you want. Right. right? Like, yeah. Brandon, I believe you're the only one that still has one thing to say. This is the top thing. Yikes. The number When Brandon thinks Narnia, he thinks this. This is what Narnia means to Brandon. At least it's not Ernest Klein. All right. Um, no, seriously. <laughs> the one thing that I was thinking is that Lewis had his own um, way of gauging the quality of a children's story, and that's whether or not he wants to reread it. Mm-hmm. And rereading these stories this time was a delight, and I had fun, like Jake said. I wanted to read them, and I want to read them again. I look forward to Lucy getting to the age where I can read to her about Lucy, and she actually understands and follows what's going on. And I think that in the end, so it's not as profound a moral statement as you guys were saying, but in the end, I think Lewis passes his own test for what makes a good quality story work. And that's that I do want to reread it. Mm -hmm. It's engaging. I, I want to go back to that story and that world. And I do look forward with excitement to reading it to my kids. My little girl, Lucy, she's only three right now, so she doesn't really follow the story. In a couple of years, I'll get to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to her, and that's going to be fun. Peter tonight finished some book and was wanting to read something. What should I read? What should I read? Dad, what should I read? Well, you know, you've never actually finished Narnia. Yeah. You never read The Silver Chair, and some people would say The Silver Chair is the best of all of them. Really? No, The Don Treader is the best. Well, I like The Don Treader a lot, but a lot of people think The Silver Chair is the best. Really? Yeah, and you've not read it. All right. Well, that was like, I got home at like, I picked him up from basketball practice at five, 
And by the time I left to come here to record, he'd read the first hundred pages of it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So that right there, I think that's telling. That and says that's everything. my number one point about this is that he writes stories that you want to read and that you want to reread. And so Lewis, you fall, you he passes his own standard for what makes a good story work. So yeah, coming back to these after maybe twenty years for me of not really engaging with them all that much, not reading them, not thinking about them, it was like I don't know, it was like walking into a your grandma's house and smelling that familiar aroma of bread or pies or something. I don't know what the analogy is, but it was like something very foreign and yet very comforting and very yeah. familiar. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, starting off this ending thing saying at least he's not Ernest Klein, it was kind of a joke, kind of not, because I never want to read Ernest Klein again. Right. And I could care less if Ernest Klein had ever existed in the first place. But my world is, I like the fact that Lewis existed. I like the fact that Narnia exists. All our world, all our... Our worlds are all better. Richer was the word I was going to use. Mm -hmm. All our worlds are richer for these books. Yeah, and so despite what people might think because of some of our hard-hitting take on this, I will be visiting Lewis again. I love him for many things. And Narnia is up there near the top of the list. Absolutely. Narnia is right up there at the top of the list. So, yep. He was a genius. I mean, he was... There's no question of that. Yeah. He was a I mean great thinker and a great writer and a great children's author. Yes. It comes this prose style. You don't you really him. you've got like at twentieth century prose style, you've got Lewis and White and Hemingway. Yep. And a handful of others that you could argue for any of them in the top five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any criticisms that we made of Lewis, people really have to understand those. Like from our point of view, maybe maybe this wasn't always expressed in a way that was understandable to people, but it was like, ah, there's a little crack on Mount Rushmore there, you know? Yeah, well, you know, Venus de Milo would probably be better if it had arms. This perfect thing has some things that are not perfect. If you're familiar with this show, you know that we're iconoclasts at heart, mm-hmm. each of us. And the fact is... Um, not me. Yeah, especially yeah. Well, me and Brandon are, but definitely not Nathan. He's not yeah. iconoclast. I'm the least iconoclast of anyone. Not like that, yeah. Jake and Brandon. Yeah, Nathan never has. If gone you after give me. us the vibe that you worship something, we're all busting out our baseball bats, if yeah. not our sledgehammers, Biddy. And so, the world, the Christian evangelical world, is in love with C.S. Lewis, and so much as we have loved him and benefited from him. We were ready to bring out the baseball bats and sledgehammers. Yeah. And what was fun with doing it was we often, we found in many places that Lewis was right on board with us. <laughs> and in other joy. places that we were terrifyingly right about yeah. his woeful inadequacies or worse. Verging on heresies. But like one of my favorite things still is the end of Surprise by Joy where he kind of brings out the baseball bat against himself mm-hmm. and anybody else who might want to idolize him. That was fun to read. Yeah, it really was. And... As you often find with idol worshipers, people often made C.S. Lewis into their own image. Yeah. And it was nothing like what he actually was. So. Yeah. Which in the case of Narnia, for the most part, is a delightful, wonderful read. Yeah. So there you have it. Yeah. If y'all hadn't have said that, well, the Venus de Milo has the greatest arms. No, it doesn't. Still Lies. Lies. But it's pretty great. Or that the Venus de Milo should be the basis for all 
Christian understanding of everything. Yeah, we shouldn't have arms either. Yeah, <laughs> mixing my metaphor there. But, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not true. But it's still a good work of art. Till we are armless. Till we are armless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we've come full circle. We managed to end things on a negative note, but. I hope people heard what we really liked about Lewis. Guys, why don't you do whatever you want, but do something. Don't well, just on. be silent. Yes. Let us all point out the fact that we have each managed to give seven lampposts to Chronicles of Narnia as a whole. That's true. Was each one of our points a, a lamppost? Lamp yep. I'm declaring that that's what it was. There seven, we go. Well, we seven, all gave. Seven out of seven. Wow, there you go. So the official perfection. The, I should three the, times seven? 21. Three and seven. Numbers of perfection. Yep. How many grams do you lose when you die? 21 grams. And we died and went to heaven when we read Lewis. That's right. Wow. Metaphors just keep rolling. Yep. Lewis style. <laughs> you can't spell graham crackers without grams. Nope. And those taste pretty good. And Lewis was a cracker. He was. <laughs> Widest cracker around. <laughs> Well, we've ended with dignity. That's the important <laughs> thing. Now, let's shout out our patrons. Let's do it. You guys do whatever you want. Just do something. Robert and Ronda the Lovebird. Robert and Ronda the Lovebird. Yard for Anthony Look at Nathan, he's over there munching on a donut while he's over there trying to give us the quotes. <laughs> I had to, folks. Brandon was going to eat it, and we were afraid he would explode. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love little baby Max. Nathan. Hey, Brandon. Hey, how you doing? Great. I'm just, I'm just saying what you, whatever I feel like saying. Okay. Hey, I really like you, Brandon, a lot. I like you too, Nathan, <laughs> a lot. You're a really great guy. Yeah, you are too, Nathan. Thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for hosting this podcast. It means man. a lot to me. Yeah. Okay. Six pack Zach with me and attacking Captain with a knack for laying. Sorry, Anthony was cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Ranger, the Texas Rachel, 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 Rachel. Leopardank Thomas, Leopardank Thomas, Midnight, Return of the Jedediah, Return of the Jedediah. Hey Nathan, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks.
Booking today, written by, produced by, etc. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. 